study here through the book of uh, Romans. And really, really excited about this message this morning. I really like what the Lord had to say. We've been talking about this getting to this point here in our study through the book of Romans. That the first eight chapters really laid the groundwork of theology, of sin, salvation, and uh, needing salvation and grace through Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 10, and 11 give us an example of Israel and their rejection of the gospel and the gospel coming to us. And then we said here from chapter 12 on, it's really all about application. And so when we get to verses 9 through 21 today, and Lord willing, time will, and we're going to get through all of this, it's all about application. Just how do we take what we have learned and, and move forward in it? I kind of refer to these verses here in 9 through 21 as the Proverbs of the New Testament. They're just short, simple little statements that kind of speak for themselves, and it's really just full of how do we take this and apply it to our lives. So I hope for you... As you go through this, you're as blessed as I was when I read through this. I was very convicted on a lot of things, saying, okay, Lord, that's something I need to work on. And I hope you feel the same way, too, just to take us deeper in our walk with the Lord. So what we're going to do is I'm actually going to read verses 9 through 21 so we get the full context of it. Then we'll come back and we'll break this up then. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing still steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, eat him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil for good. Boy, a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of good stuff. Let's just start right from the beginning. Let love be without hypocrisy. Depending on your translations, and I usually, when I prepare a message, I like to read the King James, New King James, NIV, NLT, because I know everybody's got some different translations out there. Mine says, let love be without hypocrisy. Some of your translations have a different word there. But it's talking about let your love be sincere. You know when you talk to somebody whether they're sincerely interested in you. You know when they really care about you and when they don't care. You can tell. So God says, let your love for all people be sincere. It goes back to the verse that we finished with last week, verse 8, that you're supposed to show mercy with cheerfulness. We talked about how that word cheerfulness literally means hilariously, that there's such a joy in showing mercy to people that you care so much about them. Well, our love for other people is supposed to be so sincere that they can tell, they can see it. The truth of the matter is, a lot of the times we love people on the outside, but on the inside, our heart's really not there. And that's something we're going to get into later on here today as we talk about how is our heart supposed to be. So, sincerity of heart. Let's sincerely get out there and love people like Christ does. Look at the next one here. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Pretty straightforward. Two black and whites there. That idea of hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. That word there, cling to what is good, literally means to cleave. It literally means to glue. You are so glued to what is good that you can't take that away from you. You are so trying to do what is right and good. And that abhor what is evil, that word literally means to be in horror of anything evil in your life. To be in horror of it. Now here's the problem. There's a lot of evil things in my life, and I'm not in horror of them. Sometimes I'm bothered by them. Sometimes I'm annoyed by them. Very rarely I'm, am I in horror of something evil. I kind of water it down. I'll say something I shouldn't say, and I'll be like, oh yeah, I really struggle with that. I really struggle with not losing my temper. I really have a hard time sometimes doing that. It really is difficult for me. I'm annoyed by that sin in my life. I'm bothered by that sin in my life. I'm annoyed and bothered by that evil in my life, but I'm not in horror of it. When you're in horror of it, you just hate it so much, and it just scares you so much to think if this is the opposite of what Christ wants from me. Can you imagine if we had what I like to 
to use the phrase, a holy hatred of sin in our lives. Where if there was something in our lives that was taking us away from our relationship with Christ, that we would just be so loathed by it that we'd say, Lord, I don't want this anymore in me. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference one another. That phrase, giving preference, it means to take the lead. See, a lot of times when we give preference to one another, when we honor one another, that word honor means to value. We usually do this. If you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. If you come to me in peace, I will respond in peace. This phrase, they're giving preference to one another, means take the lead. I mean, I'm supposed to do it first. I'm supposed to go and be the peacemaker first. I'm supposed to be the one to go show honor and love first. I'm the one that's supposed to act first because I've been changed by Jesus Christ. So therefore, I take the lead. A lot of times I hear people say, well, when he comes to me and tells me I'm, he's sorry, I'll forgive him. Maybe you should forgive him before he says he's sorry. But when they come to me and they want to make things right, I'll, I'll talk to him then. But until then, no way. Maybe we're supposed to take the lead. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, I've taken the lead. And it didn't go good. <laughs> I've shown preference. They didn't respond. Trust me, we're going to get to that point later on of what happens when you do everything right and you try to make peace and it still doesn't work out. Don't worry about that. We'll get to that point. But the point is we're supposed to have this love, brotherly love towards one another, valuing other people, putting them first in all that we do and say. We're a very selfish group of people a lot of times. God says put others first just like Jesus did on the cross by setting the example of being willing to die for other people. You know how hard that is to do? Hence verse 11. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. If this was easy to do, number one, I don't think God would have to repeat it again and again and again. Number two, he wouldn't have to say, verse 11, not lagging in diligence. Let's be honest. We're very lagging in diligence when it comes sometimes to showing love to people. We're very lagging in diligence sometimes when it comes to forgiving people. And it blows my mind that as Christians, we that have been forgiven by Christ, we that know what awaits us in heaven, we know the horrors of hell, but yet sometimes we hold this bitterness, this anger, this unforgiveness towards people. And for us to be touched by the love of Jesus, sometimes there's so much anger in believers. I don't get that. It takes a lot of work to forgive. It takes a lot of work to say, I will let that go. And that's why verse 11, we're supposed to be diligent to do that. See, it's interesting. Look here in verse 11. Not lagging in diligence, to me that shows the outside. Fervent in spirit, to me that shows the inside. You want both. You want the diligence on the outside, you want the fervent spirit on the inside. Here's the problem. Sometimes we have one or the other. I know people that are not lagging in diligence. They sure look good on the outside, but inside their heart's not in it. Their heart's really not devoted to it. They're just doing it to look good, sound good. And I know people that are the other way. Their heart truly does love the Lord, I believe. But they just don't go out there and show it. There's supposed to be a diligence in how we act and a fervency in our spirit and how we do things. This word for fervent in verse 11 is, is boil. You're supposed to be boiling, bubbling for Christ, if you will. That you're that excited, that you're that fervent for what Jesus has done in your life, that you're fervent for him, and there's this boiling going on. See, here's the thing. I, I firmly believe this. If you have to take a look at your life and say, you know what, to be quite honest, I'm not real bubbly for the Lord. I'm really not boiling too much here for the Lord. Ask yourself why that is. Well, what's going on that's happened? Because a lot of times when we first get saved, what are we? We're so excited about the Lord, aren't we? We, we write letters to people that we uh, know don't know the Lord to tell them about our changed life in Christ. We start telling everybody about Jesus. We can't get enough Bible studies. We go on Wednesday. We go on Sunday. Then we say, you don't have something on Thursday or Friday or Saturday or Monday or Tuesday. We, we're reading everything. We're just fervent, just boiling for the Lord. But then the honeymoon Christian phase kind of starts to go over, doesn't it? Still love the Lord. We kind of flatline a little bit. We find a place to serve, so we find our service place. We still read. We do our daily devotions, maybe a little bit more like homework rather than being excited. We come to church regularly. 
And we, and we, we talk about the Lord when God opens a door. And we kind of almost do this little bit of flatlining. But that excitement, that fervent, just kind of disappears. I remember when I first got saved, I did a study through the book of Isaiah. And I remember I, I got up every morning, and I just could not wait to get into that. I mean, there was just this excitement. And every time I left the house, I thought, Lord, who am I going to run into that I can share the Lord? Who? And then what happens is you look back at that old life, and now you look at where you're at now, and I say, okay, yeah, I've matured in the Lord. I mean, I've now I've studied through Isaiah a few times. I got it all figured out now. No, Lord, what happened to that excitement, that fervent, that boiling over? What happens if you don't have that anymore? Two things come to mind on that. First one, you don't need to turn there, but if you're taking notes, write this down. It's Luke 24, 32. Luke 24, 32. There's a story where Jesus was talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what happened was, as Jesus was talking to them, they didn't know who he was. And the Bible says that he expounded on the scriptures from Moses and explained to them who the Messiah was. Then he left. And then once they left, the two disciples then figured out who Jesus was. And this is what they said. Did our heart not burn within us when he opened the scriptures? I tell you, if you're not boiling too much for the Lord... How's the time in the Word going? Let's just be honest. The Bible says that our heart burns within us when we get into God's Word. The Bible says that our walk with the Lord grows in faith when we get into the Word. Now, I'm not putting down worship. I'm not putting down service. I'm not putting down fellowship. Those things are all vital. I think it's vital to have a time of worship, vital to have a time of fellowship, vital to have a time of service for the Lord. But the thing that will make you grow in the Lord, the thing that will create a boiling in the Lord for you, is being in the Word. That's why we put such an emphasis on the teaching. It's because there's such an emphasis of being in the Word that helps that fervent spirit grow. All that other stuff is vital and it's important. There's something about that time in the Word that really makes our heart burn within us for more of the Lord. The other thing that helps us boil more for the Lord is look at that last phrase there in verse 11. Serving the Lord. I, I tell this to people all the time. If you find yourself becoming dry spiritually, where are you serving? If you're not serving anywhere, then there's no release for everything that you're getting. You're coming and hopefully being fed. You're coming and having a time of worship. You're coming and having time of fellowship. The, the goal then is to say, let's go do something about this. As we've said numerous times out here, church, the purpose we're here on Sunday morning is to give you a time of corporate prayer, a time of corporate worship, and a time of teaching and edification, an opportunity for fellowship, then to train you up to say, go do something with it. Too often church is looked at as I come, I listen, I leave, I go back, and I do it again. We want you to get built up to go do something with this, is to then go serve the Lord. So this is not a message to say, go sign up to serve here or there. Last week we got into service. If you weren't with us, we talked about verses 6 through 8 of chapter 12, where it's the different gifts of the Spirit. And I encourage you to get a copy of that seed or D or listen to it online to kind of say, okay, where has God called me to serve? But if you're not having a place to serve, I really encourage you to pray about it. That is part of your Christian walk. And as you serve, you find yourself being fervent for the Lord because you see the Lord doing things and moving. I always tell people, if you're coming in and you're battling depression, if you're getting discouraged about stuff, get out there and serve. Because that gives you an opportunity to focus on other people rather than what's wrong in your life. So when you put this together, lagging and diligence, that's on the outside. I'm doing something. Fervent in spirit, that's on the inside. And then the result of this is I'm serving the Lord. Now what happens is if we'd stop after verse 11, everybody would be pumped up and say, okay. Where can I serve? What can I do? I'm going to boil for Jesus Christ. I'm going to get out there in verse 9. I'm going to love sincerely. I'm going to hate everything evil in my life. I'm going to cling to what's good. Verse 10, I'm going to put other people first. And verse 11, I'm going to serve and be diligent. We would just leave right there. We could have a great pep rally and we could all go home. Problem is there's verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. God always screws it up by mentioning tribulation. You ever notice that? He always does that. Now, why does he do that? Do you realize that every now and then we run into these things of like, I had a bad day today. Why? 
the Lord must have fallen. He must have failed. You realize that's going to happen. Jesus came right out and said, and if you're taking notes, write it down, John 16, 33. John 16, 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. Not you might, not maybe. He says, you will have tribulation. Now, the second part of that verse is, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, some of you came in today with tribulation. I don't know what your tribulation is. Some of it may be physical. Some of it may be emotional. Some of it may be spiritual. But people came into this building today with tribulation. Guess what? God's not shocked by that. He said it's going to happen. You may be shocked by that. You may have woke up in such physical pain today. You may know somebody that's in such physical pain. God's not shocked by that. You may be struggling with something spiritually right now, and it's really difficult for you to let go of it. God's not shocked by that. You may have an emotional hurt and pain in your life right now. It's really hard to let go of. Well, it's not shocked by that. He said 2,000 years ago, in this world, you will have tribulation. Now, the problem is, as Christians, we ignore those verses. We don't talk about the tribulation that may happen. What's the answer to that tribulation? First part of verse 12, rejoicing in hope. Hope of heaven. Hope of eternity. Hope that this tribulation can end. That hope is what gets us through. This is not, not some naive hope. This is hope in realizing that God is still moving and working even when we don't see it. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 5, please. Let's talk about this hope for a little bit. There's three words in that verse 12 we need to focus on. Hope tribulation and prayer hope tribulation and prayer first one we've talked about tribulation we have difficulties god has warned us god has told us god has shown us this world is a troublesome world sometimes we will have tribulation let's not be shocked by that we've covered that base now let's talk about hope start in verse one of romans five with me please therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in what Hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured onto our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. When we go through tribulations, we know that tribulation eventually produces hope. Hope in realizing Jesus will get me through this. Hope in realizing this tribulation may end. Hope in realizing there's an eternity of heaven waiting for me that gets me through this. That hope? What happens when that hope starts to die? Because let's be honest, it does. We pray about something, and then all of a sudden we just expect that mountain to be moved just like that. That pain I'm going through physically, oh, I prayed about it, I was anointed by the church, people were praying for me, so I'm going to wake up tomorrow, it's going to be gone. Maybe it will be, maybe it's not. So let's say it's not. Did God fail? That situation at work, I know I've got a really big day tomorrow and there's potential for it really to go south and be really bad. So Lord, I'm going to pray about this tonight. I'm going to give this over to you. And then you go to work tomorrow in hope, knowing that this day is going to go good and the day goes worse than you can ever imagine. Did God fail? Of course not. Well, maybe I just should have just prayed more. Maybe not. See, that last word we're talking about is prayer. See, here's the problem we have with prayer. We think the purpose of prayer is prayer changes the situation. So bad day tomorrow, I pray about it. Day goes good. I'm hurting today physically, I pray about it, so I wake up tomorrow and things go good. That's the purpose of prayer. Prayer changes things. Sometimes it does. Sometimes prayer just changes you. Sometimes prayer doesn't change the situation. Prayer changes the way you look at the situation. There's been many times in my Christian walk where I've given things over to the Lord in prayer and trust that he's going to change it. Maybe it's a person that's really difficult and really hard to be around. So Lord, work on their attitude. Lord, work on their personality. Lord, bring them to you so that way it's easier for me to be around them. And maybe the Lord says, no. No, I'm going to work on you so that way you can have more patience and love towards them. Maybe it's a situation where it could go really bad. So, Lord, I pray this goes good because easy days are easier for me. Maybe the Lord says, no, this day is going to be tough. 
but I want you to learn to cling to me through the difficult times. So I'm allowing difficulties in your life to see if you're going to cling to me. So prayer does change things. It may not change the situation. It just may change the way I deal with things and my attitude about it. So when somebody comes to me and says, well, I prayed about it and nothing changed. Maybe the situation is not going to change. Maybe the way you're handling the situation is what God wants to work on. I'm telling you right now, that's not fair and that's not fun. <laughs> I'd be the first one to say that. But that's God molding us and making us to the image that he wants us to be. So when you go through verse 12 and you have tribulation, God says, have hope that I'm still working. And through prayer, trust that I can work in this situation to either mold you to handle it or to change the situation. And this is not just that token little, Lord, you know the situation. I give it to you. I pray you take care of it. Amen. Look at these words again in verse 12. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. I know a lot of people that pray about it, and they give God a good five seconds. A good five seconds in prayer about it. Continuing steadfastly. There's a power in every day giving those things over to the Lord. I'm not trying to pray so hard that God has to, from heaven, change it. But that time I spend with Him also helps me to handle the situation better. So when I continue steadfastly in prayer, it means I'm giving my concerns over to the Lord, going back to verse 9. I'm clinging to what is good, so therefore my heart and attitude changes. That's what I notice a lot of times in my prayer life, guys. It's not that the situation changes, it's the way I handle it. I believe prayer changes a lot of things. We have a little saying that we say out here all the time. Prayer accomplishes more than what we never imagined. I've seen situations out here that have been changed in prayer. And it's like, oh, we need to go talk to that person. We need to do this. We need to do that. Maybe. If the Lord leads, we will. Maybe we just need to pray about it. And it's amazing how sometimes when we pray about it, the situation doesn't change, but I come back later and it's like, you know, Lord, I can let that go. Or, you know, Lord, my heart's changed on that. Prayer changes a lot of things. So put these words together. I have hope and tribulation through prayer. That's what it comes down to. Whatever you're facing today, you have hope and tribulation through prayer. Those three words in verse 12 are absolutely vital as we go through this, as we need to have and trust that the Lord is moving and working. So now... What do we do with this? Well, verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Now that our heart is right, because really verses 9 through 12 are dealing with the heart. I want to love sincerely. I want to hate what is evil. I want to cling to what is good. I want to put other people first. I want to be diligent. I want to be fervent for the Lord. I want to rejoice. I want to be patient. I want to be in prayer. Now that we have our heart right with the Lord, what do we do about it? Verse 13, we get out there and do something. We distribute to the needs of the saints and we give into hospitality. Two things on that. First one, distribute to the needs of the saints. Does God play favorites? A little bit he does because there's numerous references throughout the Bible where God says, I take care of my church. Right here, distribute to the needs of the saints. If you're taking notes, write this one down. It's Galatians 6.10. It says that we're supposed to do good, especially to those of the household of the faith. If someone is part of the body of Christ, we want to go above and beyond and do whatever we can to help them out in any way whatsoever. It's not that we don't care about the unsafe world, but God says make sure that you're also taking care of the body. So distributing to the needs of the saints, make sure that we have a heart for those in the flock. This next one, given to hospitality. That word hospitality literally means love to strangers. So that means we're also supposed to love those that aren't part of the body. See, it's a balance. But this is what I run into. I run into people that is almost one or the other. They'll have love to strangers. Anybody that's not part of the church, they will go out there and just do whatever they can. But when it comes to taking care of the church, I don't care about that. I just want to see the lost saved. Well, so do I. There's a balance. I also want to see those that are saved go deeper in their walk with the Lord. Then I see it the other way. Those that, well, you know, that's my brother and sister in the Lord, and I love them so much, whatever I can do to help them. 
That's great. What about your unsaved loved one? Well, I don't care about them. I only care about my family. There's a balance here. And that's what I love about these passages. That shows both sides. Verse 13, I help out the saints. I help out the Christians. I help out the church. But I also show love to strangers. I have both sides of that, and therefore I'm showing love to all. Now, this is where the lesson really gets good or bad, depending on how you look at it. Do you know how hard it is to love everybody? It is really difficult to love people. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You know how hard it is to love somebody that is unlovable? You know how hard it is to love somebody who is just downright mean to you and rude to you and uses you? This word bless is where we get our English word for a eulogy that you give at a funeral. Now, I've been to lots of funerals. I've done lots of funerals. And generally speaking at funerals, no matter what the person was like in their life, you only hear good about them. You don't hear somebody usually get up at a funeral and be really honest about what someone was like. We have those moments and we try to say good things. We look for something nice to say about them. That's what the eulogy is. We talk about this person and we talk about how nice and wonderful they were, maybe even if they weren't, because that's just what you do at a funeral. Well, it's that same word that we use here. Somebody who persecutes you and curses you, you're supposed to bless them and be nice to them and love them. You know how difficult that is to do? Because this is what happens, once again, as Christians. We've been changed by the Lord and we love Jesus and Jesus loves us. But my goodness, if you cross me, I won't forget that. You've been mean to me, well, I'll be mean right back to you. That's the way you're going to be, that's the way I'll be back to you. So you go to these verses like this, and these verses don't apply to the people I know. Because there's a clause in here somewhere, I just haven't found it yet. God wants me to love everybody but him. God wants me to care for everybody but her, because she has wronged me, he has hurt me so bad, I don't have to bless them, I don't have to pray for them, I don't have to love them. That's not in there. Can you imagine if Jesus had that same heart and attitude for the, from the cross? You know, I'll die for everybody, but I'm not dying for James. You know what James did to me? You know what James did in my name? My goodness, I'm not dying for him. He died for everybody. He died for the people that didn't even want him to die for him. That's love. So when we look at these passages of bless those who persecute you and, and bless those that curse you, that is really difficult to do. Jesus took it one step further. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to this. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. There is no exemption clause in that passage. Now, generally what happens in a passage like this is two things happen. Someone comes up to me afterwards and says, but you don't know what they did to me. So let's just address that. That we're supposed to love everybody, bless everybody, and be nice to everybody, forgive everybody. But let's talk about the person that you don't know what they did to me. Now, my response back to that is usually pretty simple. My first response back is, well, you don't know what people have done to me. Well, what I went through is so difficult and so hard. Maybe it was. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know how people have hurt you. I don't know how you have been wronged over the years. I don't know. But I know that Jesus hung on the cross for people that hated him and spit on him and kicked him and hurt him and they killed him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus set the ultimate example of love and forgiveness. It's amazing how as Christians we can have such a deep-hearted anger towards people. Anger. Not love, not forgiveness, but anger. The next one I usually run into is not that you don't know what they did to me, but the, you know what, well, the people I'm talking about won't respond to that whole love stuff. The only way they respond is, you know, if you're loud, you've got to be louder back. If you're tough, you've got to be tougher back. Yeah, somehow that doesn't line up with Christianity real well. I can't imagine Jesus saying, oh, you hurt me? Well, fine, I'll just toast you all. That's not what happened. Now, I know that's human nature, and that's what we like. We've joked about this before. We like those anger fantasies, don't we? But when he says this to me, I'm going to say this to him. And then when they come do this, I'm going to do that. And we get ourselves all riled up because it feels so good to be angry. And I know people that just will just keep finding something to be angry about. Love, grace, mercy, blessing, forgiveness. 
That is what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus set the example of that. We've talked about the last couple of weeks of doormat Christianity. Sometimes we get walked on. We get walked on because it helps further the gospel. There are times where it's really difficult to not have that anger and frustration. Jump ahead, if you will, please, to uh, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Repay no one. You know what no one means? No one. No one is exempt. I, I, this sounds really mean, but it doesn't matter what they've done to you. It doesn't matter what they've said about you behind your back. It doesn't matter the way they've treated you. Repay no one evil for evil. There is no exemption clause in that verse. And this is what happens. We reach a point where this person has so wronged me, so hurt me, I'm allowed to be angry at them. I'm allowed to carry a grudge. I'm allowed to be bitter. I'm allowed to fill in the blank. What a horrible thing that is. It destroys you. Have you ever seen somebody that's so full of anger and bitterness? They have no joy in life. They're destroyed by carrying around this burden of anger and forgiveness where they could be freed by forgiveness if they want. They just choose not to. What do you do then? Well, you try to make peace. Try to build a peace on you. Live peaceably with all men. You do what you can to make peace. Truth of the matter is some people don't want to make peace with you. I had a situation out here years ago where there was an uh, individual that was very... Uh, bothered by something that happened. So we called them, we wrote them, we texted them. We did whatever we could to try to build a bridge with them. This person did not want to have peace. We did what we could to build a bridge. This person chose not to do that. There's nothing we can do about that. People will come up to me and say, I've done this wrong, I've hurt this, I've hurt my family, whatever. And I say to them, have you gone to them and told, you, told them you're sorry? Yes, I've told them I'm sorry. Okay, but they won't forgive me, Pastor. Nothing you can do about that. If they choose not to forgive you, there's nothing you do. But I want so bad to have this relationship restored. I bet you do. But there's nothing you can do about that. As much as depends on you, live at peace with all people. You do what you can to make peace. Some people don't want peace with you. If they choose not to forgive you, there's nothing you can do about that. If they choose not to let go of the past, there's nothing you can do about that. You do what you can to build a bridge. If they choose not to build a bridge, there's nothing you can do about that. Now what happens, though, is when we do this, and this is generally what happens, people come up and say, I'm going to go to this person that I've had a falling out with, and I'm going to bring the olive branch of peace. I'm going to try to do what I can to make peace. So I go to them to try to make peace, and then it doesn't work. So they come back and they say, well, I've tried. It didn't work. Now they, about a week or two later, maybe a little bit later, they come back, and they're really angry. What are you angry about? Well, I went to them and told them I'm sorry. They didn't do anything. There's nothing you can do about that. Well, I, they're really ticked now. They go from being sorry to now being mad that their apology wasn't accepted. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather give place to wrath, for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Fine, let it go. Well, they need to be taught a lesson. They can't walk around life like that just knowing, thinking they're right. I know they're wrong. Someone needs to tell them they're wrong. Let the Holy Spirit tell them they're wrong. Well, the Holy Spirit's not moving fast enough. Okay, come on. God's not moving quick enough. Don't. You've got to let it go. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We are not judge, jury, and executioner. The Lord will reveal to them that they are wrong, and the Lord will then take care of that. Now, what happens is sometimes we look at verse 19, and we start saying, oh, yeah, I like verse 19. All those people that have hurt me, all those people that have wronged me, will one time stand before the Lord, and they will be told that they were wrong, and they will be judged. And we get some type of sick pleasure out of thinking of all these people that have hurt us and wronged us are now going to be judged before God. I tell you right now, there is no joy in the death of the wicked. If there is some joy you have in some person that have hurt you or wronged you, tasting the fires of hell for all of eternity, you need to go back to Christianity 101 and learn the love of Jesus. This is not a verse of verse 19 to say, oh yeah, they're going to get what they deserve. No. This is a verse to say, let it go. The Lord will take care of it. We'll have situations at home 
where the boys will be doing something wrong. Generally, Elias is the one that likes to take charge. So one of the other boys will be doing something wrong, and Elias will come report to us what the other boys have done. I don't know if your kids are like that, but basically Dawn and I don't need a parent because Elias will just take care of everything. Once he gets a job and he can drive, we can just be done. So what happens is he's going to take care of everything. So he reports to us what's wrong. Well, he then also would like to get involved with the discipline of it. Dad, would you like me to just take care of this? No, buddy, we're, we're mom and dad. We can take care of it. Sometimes I think we do the same thing spiritually. Verse 19, Lord, I know vengeance is yours, but if you want to use me as the hand of vengeance, I'm willing to smack them. You know, Lord, whatever you want me to do. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Get out. Well, once again, the Lord is not repaying quick enough. The Lord is not repaying severely enough. I am sitting here hurt and wrong, and they're going on with life like everything is fine and dandy. Your job is to forgive, forget, and move on. That's your job. Let the Lord take care of the rest. What happens if you have that enemy you can't move on from? What happens if you're married to the enemy? What happens if you work with the enemy? What happens if the enemy is your mom, your dad, your kids? Look at verse 20. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. If you want to get back at someone who's really mean to you, just be nice to him. They don't know how to handle it. They really don't know how to handle it. You bring him in something like and said, hey, I made some extra brownies. I brought them in for you. They look at it like there's razor blades in there or something like that. The way we deal with this is just like Jesus did on the cross. Jesus died for his enemies. Lord, I am willing to let go of my hurt, my pain, my anger, my bitterness, and die to those emotions so that way my enemies can come to know Jesus Christ. That is all that matters in this world is seeing lost people saved. It's not about seeing who's right, who's wrong, and everybody getting their due. We want people to taste the forgiveness and love of Jesus Christ, no matter what they've done to us. I look at the end of this passage. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. You get to burn him up with love. Now, some people usually come up to me after this message and say, well, you know what that verse is really talking about? As in biblical times that they carried the coals of their fire on their head. And so therefore what is happening is that you're helping them out. As they're taking that fire from one camp to another, you're helping put coals on their head, and therefore you're helping your enemy out. Okay, that's great, and that's fine. I like that. But in my translation, I just like the idea of I'm dumping fire on them for some reason. So take it or leave it how you want. I like it that I'm just envisioning me being nice to someone who's like toasting them. So point is, we all have somebody that frustrates us. We all have somebody or something that gets to us. We all have something that eats away at us. God says love them, forgive them, bless them. Do what you can to live at peace with them. If they choose to reject that peace and they just want to be rude, there's nothing you can do about it. Don't sit there in anger and bitterness and vengeance saying, well, I can't believe that. You've got to let it go. Jesus set the ultimate example for us on how we're supposed to do that. Now, it's easier to look at when you're talking about from the outside world. What happens when it's people within the body? Look at verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Be of the same mind towards one another. As we talked about the last couple weeks, God desires unity. Because if we're not unified in seeing the gospel presented, we're going to spend all our time and energy fighting each other rather than seeing Jesus be proclaimed. Some of you may have been involved with churches where there's so much infighting, no one's out going to try to reach the lost. That is a sad state when we can't come together to see people get saved. I'm just going to share some verses with you out of Philippians. This idea of being unified together as one. Just listen to this. Paul writes in Philippians 1 that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We work together for this. Therefore, if there's any consolation, any in Christ, if any comfort or love, if any a fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like minded, having the same love, being of one mind, 
of one accord, oneness in the Lord. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I think of your needs before I think of my needs. Verse 4, let each one of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. That's the mind of Christ. I put you before I think of me. I want unity. That's what that verse that we've been talking about for weeks is rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. If you come to me and you're weeping, there's sadness in your life, I will put my life to the side and say, I will weep with you because my heart breaks because your heart breaks. If you come to me and you're rejoicing because the Lord has done something amazing in your life, I will put my life to the side and I will rejoice with you. That's what we do. But what happens if you come to me weeping and I'm in a great rejoicing moment? I put my joy to the side and say, this person's hurting. See, a lot of times we don't do that, do we? We, we stay away from those people that bring us down. That person's always negative. They're always complaining. They're always bothered by something. So it's really difficult for me to talk to them. So I just stay away from them. Maybe the Lord is asking you to go into their life to bring a little bit of hope in their time of weeping and mourning and sadness. Or what happens if I'm having a weeping moment, but someone comes and is rejoicing? Hopefully I can put aside my time of sadness and say, you know what? I'm just happy for that person. Even though my life is not the way I want it to be right now, I'm happy for that person. Because we're one mind, one accord, united together, not letting the enemy get in and create problems and divisions. That's what the enemy does. And you know why he gets in there because we know everything don't we look at verse 15 look at the end of verse 15 do not be wise in your own opinion do not be wise in your own opinion one translation says you don't know it all well we don't know it all do we now we think we know it all right this is what i hear people say this is sometimes what i say i know why they did that i know what they were thinking i know what they're saying about me no i don't how, how do i know what someone's thinking because well, i just know what they're like i know exactly what they're saying about me behind my back it's like a pretty cool superpower. No, you don't know what they're saying. You may think you know, but you don't know. Why know what they're thinking? No, you don't know what they think. I know what they're saying. No, you don't. We convince ourselves of facts that are not facts. We have this great discussion with ourselves, and we then come to this predetermined conclusion of that's what they are saying, thinking, and doing about me behind my back, and therefore it has to be true because I'm really smart, and I figured this out on my own. That is a dangerous place to be. One of the scariest verses in the Bible, I believe, was the um, third king of Israel, and I can't remember his name right now. It may have been Rehoboam where there's a passage where it says, he thought unto himself, then he made a decision. You realize how scary that is to have a conversation with yourself with only the insight and wisdom that you have, and therefore you now know the whole situation. Anytime someone comes to me and says, oh, I know what they're saying, I usually ask them, how do you know? Well, I haven't heard it, but I just know that's what they have to be saying about me. Oh my goodness. That leads to such problems. That leads to such scenarios. We don't know anything. I, I shared this example at the 830 service this morning. We, we think we're smart when we're really not. I went up to Alan to get the mic during worship for the 830 service. So I go up to Alan and I just kind of do this. Because, you know, music's going on and that's the sign I need the mic. Alan kind of looks at me. I look back at him and I say, I need the mic. And he goes, you need the mic? And he goes, yeah. And he looks at me. He goes, he goes you have the mic on. I, I, it was kind of funny. I thought, okay. But I had the mic on. Forget it. 830 service laughed. That's why I like them better. Um, we don't know it all. We really just don't know it all, and we have this assumption that we think we know everything and we don't, and that leads to problems and leads to situations because we really think we have it all figured out. I've really reached the conclusion that I really don't know much. I know that Jesus loves me and died for me, and that's, that's what I know. I know Genesis to Revelation is true. I know that God is good and does good. That's a pretty good starting point for me. But when it comes to why people do things and what's going on in their mind and that we need to do this, I really don't know. That's why we need to pray about these things and seek the Lord and see what God says because I don't want to be wise in my own opinion. Because when I'm wise in my own opinion, I get myself into a whole lot of trouble because I just know it all. Gosh, the only thing that matters is whether people are saved or not. That's really all that matters. Put this all together now. Look how simple and straightforward this is. Verse 9, let's be sincere in our love. Let's, let's hate anything evil in our life. Let's cling to what's good. Verse 10, 
Let's put other people first. Verse 11, let's be diligent in what we do, but let's boil and fervent for Jesus, and let's get out there and serve. As we serve, verse 12, we're going to run into tribulation. So let's have hope that God will get me through it, and I'm going to be strong in prayer to get me through that tribulation. Verse 13, I'm then going to get out and do something about this. I'm going to serve. I'm going to help the body of Christ, and I'm also going to help those that I don't even know. And as I help people I don't know, I'm going to run into difficulties because people can be really rude sometimes. Verse 14, so I'm going to bless those who persecute me, and I'm not going to curse them. I'm going to show love to them. Jump ahead to verse 17. I'm not going to repay evil for evil. Verse 18, I'm going to do what I can to make peace with those people, even if they don't want peace with me. Verse 19, if they don't want peace with me, I'm just going to give it over to the Lord and let him take care of it. And verse 20, when given an opportunity, I will show love to the unlovables. I will love my enemy and do what I can to show love to them. And verses 15 and 16, I will be in the same mind with the body of Christ. The only thing that matters is Jesus. I will weep with you. I will rejoice with you. And then the end of verse uh, 16 there, I will accept the fact I don't know it. Which then takes me to verse 21. Not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As we've mentioned before, that word overcome means to be victorious. So, very simply put, verse 21. Either evil wins or good wins. So, which one's going to win in your life? One of them is going to be victorious. There are no ties in Christianity. Either evil wins or good wins. So when I put this all together, Lord, I don't want evil to be victorious in my life. I want good to be victorious in my life. So therefore, I put into practice everything I heard today. Like we said here, Romans 12 on, it's all about application. It's all about saying, Lord, I want to take what I have learned and now apply it to my life and love the unloved. So, Marv, want to come here forward here for the final song? Just some quick